When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad-free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. This week on The Sunday Debate, we're looking at disruptive events unfolding in China and asking what the future holds for Xi Jinping and the country. Protests have spontaneously erupted in China in recent weeks in response to the country's zero-COVID policy, and some say it's a pivotal moment for Xi Jinping's strongman rule, especially given the Chinese economy is also suffering. To examine recent events and what they mean for China more closely, we're joined by two experts, Yasheng Huang, professor at MIT and author of Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics, and Kerry Brown, director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and author of Xi, A Study in Power. Let's go to our speakers and host Carl Miller now. Thank you. And everyone, a very, very warm welcome from me as well. Now, um, as we all know, of course, in recent weeks, protests have erupted across China. Frustrations have been building for some time over the state's zero COVID policy, which has been imposed to tackle any outbreaks and has led to long spells of confinement at home for many millions of people. 
Some commentators have compared what we've been seeing there now to 1989, when students demonstrated for political reforms and democracy, while others say that the protests are really just about the COVID policy and will die down once the restrictions have loosened. Carrie, let's begin with you. Bring um, us all up to speed with what we actually have seen in China over the last several weeks. You know, what the scale of the protests been like? Where, Where have they been happening? How many people? Do we know how many people have been involved? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a big uh, congress in October where new leaders were put in place, but the main leader, Xi Jinping, to no one's surprise, uh, is continuing for what's called a third term. After that, uh, there were uh, some lockdowns in places, uh, particularly Beijing, uh, Zhengzhou, where there's a big factory, the Foxconn factory, uh, a number of other places. Probably the most significant event was a fire in Urumqi in Xinjiang, uh, I think right at the be, um, sort of middle of last month. And that killed, I think, about 10 people. People were locked into their apartments. They couldn't get out. The whole place has been in lockdown for over 100 days. Staggering, really. Uh, and partly as a result of that, other reasons too, uh, maybe people seeing uh, the World Cup in uh, Qatar uh, on TV, you know, kind of images of the rest of the world basically uh, getting on while China's still going through these battles to have zero COVID. Uh, there were protests, mostly in cities, uh, but quite widespread um, in Shanghai, uh, in Beijing, in Chengdu, I believe, uh, in Urumqi. And these protests, I think, partly were absolute frustration at the continuation of disruption and the very capricious sort of nature sometimes of these lockdowns, uh, heavy-handed officials, but also um, at uh, for some of them, although it's hard to assess how significant this is, I mean, real direct protests about uh, Xi Jinping, his style of leadership. How many people took part? It's hard to say. I mean, obviously significant numbers, but proportionally, according to the populations of these places or the whole of China, I mean, not massive numbers, but I mean significant because it's extremely difficult to protest in China per se. So they were in significant protests. Since then, the Chinese government has relaxed some of the restrictions I heard today that QR codes, for instance, are not going to be mandatory from now on. Um, Other sort of relaxations. But the question is, uh, if they do have relaxations, will there be a colossal spike and then huge issues with the Chinese healthcare system? Yusheng, over to you. So, so just still dwelling on these protests, what, what, have they evolved in their character as they've been going on? I mean, have they been getting either more or less violent, more or less public? What do they actually look like? Are they, uh, is, is there a kind of pattern to, to what the protesters are actually trying to do in terms of where they're trying to occupy or, or who they're trying to reach? Yeah, so you compare that uh, many others have done that to 1989, but I don't think that's the right comparison. First of all, in terms of scale, the 1989 was much bigger. And 1989 did break out in many, many cities, just as this one. This one, according to CNN, uh, it broke out in about 17 cities. But from the videos and the TV images, the size of the crowd is relatively modest. In a, in a country of 1.4 billion people, and according to another estimate, about 400 million people were under some sort of lockdown uh, in 2022. So relative to that, 
the size, you know, say 10,000, 1,000 is relatively small, right? So, and, and, and the other difference is that Tiananmen happened against a larger backdrop of China becoming quite liberal, um, reforms were uh, uh, unfolding both in economic and political arenas. You had liberal leaders, and intellectually, it was the most free period in Chinese history. So it was really on the basis of kind of relaxation and freedom, then the protests happened, and the, and the demonstrators wanted more freedom. Whereas this one is really about grievances, right, and about a particular kind of grievance, as you mentioned, being confined to your apartments, to few hospitals for a long period of time, they're against that. And so this is against oppression as opposed to for political freedom and elections and free speech. People definitely uh, protest against lack of free speech. But I don't think that's the major motivation. So in terms of where it is going, there's a combination of tactics by the government, which is, on the one hand, they are easing the lockdowns uh, and basically satisfying one of the demands by the demonstrators. And the other is that behind the scene, they are cracking down on the protesters, arresting people and all of that. The combination of these two actions has led to a period of quiet. Uh, so we haven't seen nearly the same scale of protests as we saw uh, before. So, But something new can happen. And I think one thing that has happened since the protests is the recognition that protests actually worked. <laughs> so the government actually made the concession because of the protests. And this is something that the Chinese government never wanted to acknowledge because they knew very well if they do that too often, they're encouraging protests. Uh, so in the future, it depends on what other specific grievances that may arise. Maybe the easing of the lockdown is not going to be complete. And also, as Carrie pointed out, China is not well prepared for another virus surge. So there could be really, really unpleasant scenarios going down the road. And, you know, we can discuss those uh, 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 next. Kerry, do, do you agree with that? Is Were these primarily about the zero COVID policies then and, and the, the kind of the either the criticism of Z or, or, or the kind of a call for wider, wider liberalizations have, have very much been a kind of secondary kind of character to the protest? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, what I was really fascinated by when these protests happened is uh, how much in you know the Western media, um, the Economist, the Financial Times, and others that uh, th- they really want to see a kind of protest which is about the whole regime and about Xi Jinping and his leadership, and this is for freedom. Now, I mean, I don't deny that uh, there are some people who are protesting for that. Uh, but I agree with Yasheng. I don't think that that's the majority. Firstly, because it is extremely high risk to uh, make those kind of protests. Uh, righteous protest, as it's sometimes called in China, against specific policies, I think is accepted and sort of listened to, um, although it can be a consequential sometimes for people protesting. 
But if you are directly threatening the, le- the legitimacy of the party state, you are doing something absolutely different. And the consequences are much, much higher. Um, there's certainly unease at the very autocratic nature of his leadership and the fact that he's responsible really for everything. However, I get the feeling that people protesting wanted to see these restrictions lifted. They've had enough. They are very tired of them. And I think it's understandable. Uh, what, what we've got to remember is China hasn't had a national lockdown in the way that Britain, for instance, did. But it's had these sorts of blitzkrieg lockdowns in Shanghai earlier this year. They went on for over two months and they are extremely draconian. You can't really leave your home. Uh, in Shanghai, you weren't able to get food sometimes. There were big, big, uh, you know, so big anger about this and not really sustainable. This approach is clearly not sustainable. So although Xi Jinping said at the Congress, there's going to be no change in this policy. I mean, clearly there has been a change. Um, but I also agree with Yashin that um, after this, the, I think the real playground, the playfield is going to be the economic consequences because that's really where there are problems. I, it seems to me that China is in a very difficult position now where uh, its growth is very low, its unemployment is probably rising, at least for young people. Uh, there's lots of problems in the housing market. And if these all come together, that's a China which I haven't certainly seen in, in my time dealing with China. And I don't know what it will look like politically. All I do know is that it must have political consequences and politicians have to deal with that. And if they can't, I can see things getting very, very difficult. Thank you, Carrie. Right, Yashang, over to you. Let, let's, talk, let's talk about the economy. So, so I, I think one of the things that's very often said about the Chinese Communist Party is that, you know, it's kind of bargain with the people is somehow the kind of monopoly on political power in exchange for its delivery of these astronomical uh, speeds of economic development and growth. Can you, can you kind of take us through what has happened with the Chinese economy over the, over the last 20 years? You know, what were people used to seeing happen? Industries that people have seen emerge within their recent lifetimes and then and then what what's you know Kerry's already alluded to this but what's changed recently yeah so i think there it is also good to go back to tiananmen in 1989 the thing that got the communist party out of tiananmen crisis was not tanks right so in the short run it was tanks and and and, and repression but over the longer term, it was really economic growth. And so China pursued economic reforms, opening to the outside world, repaired its relationship with the West, got into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, hosted the Olympics, and, and then became the factory of the world. That created jobs, that created economic prosperity, that created income gains, urbanization, and people over time, basically moved on and forgot about Tiananmen. You'll be amazed to find out how many young people in China before the current protest knew nothing about Tiananmen. And it's, it's, they didn't, didn't really have the curiosity because their life was, was uh, improving. What has changed, and, and this is not just COVID, uh, before, even before COVID, was that since Xi Jinping came into power, he changed and he revised the social contract. 
social contract was the government would demand loyalty from you, but I gave you some freedom to improve your life, to improve your economic、uh, position, and do do pretty much whatever you want to do. If you want to engage in corruption, you can do that. If you want to go to Wall Street and make money by listing your company in in New York Stock Exchange, you can do that. You can get SoftBank to invest in your venture,、uh, venture projects and ideas. You can do that. Basically, anything goes on the economic side. But politically, you don't go out of the line. You you observe the boundary, the political boundary, in exchange for social and、uh, some social freedom, a lot of economic freedom. So that was the previous social contract. Xi Jinping, and we can debate about his motivations. Xi Jinping changed that. He cracked down on the private sector, not recognizing that private sector was <laughs> was the single most important thing that got China out of Tiananmen, lifted Chinese economy. He cracked down on them. He also cracked cracked down on social media, cracked down on the limited intellectual freedom that、uh, China had before 2012. And now with the COVID, he cracked down your freedom to walk on the street. Right. So, but so when the students and protesters are asking for freedom, they are asking for freedom to walk on the street, to go to a shop, to go to a restaurant. Right. In my piece for New York Times, I said if that's the battleground on which a debate is waged between democracy and autocracy, democracy is going to win. They win the battle all the time. Right. So, so that pivoted people's attentions. On、um, the nature of the regime, right? They saw the nature of the regime as a problem for the way that they lead their life, and that's why they are so bold as to even challenge the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And that was an incredibly courageous and and brave act. I completely agree with Carrie. There are going to be consequences, right, down the road. The economy is not going to recover. Maybe recover from the low base because in the last three years the base has been very low. Maybe there's some recovery from that. It's never going to return to the kind of prosperity that China enjoyed between 1989 and I would argue probably 2018, 2017. It's not going to go back to that. And the Biggest problem, the, the the most immediate and biggest problem for the regime is the government itself. The size of the Chinese government is huge. To maintain the size of the Chinese government, you require rapid GDP growth to generate the revenue to support that government, and that is not going to be enough to support that. Size of the government, so there's going to be unhappiness. There's going to be complaints、uh, from civil servants, maybe from state-owned enterprise、uh, workers and managers, maybe about their bonus payments and, and things like that. The other consequence that I foresee is the healthcare costs. Right, so all these incredibly expensive PCR tests that they are doing are being paid for from the medical benefits maintained by the government. That size of that fund is really, really being challenged by the zero COVID policy. In the future, you used to get one hundred percent reimbursement. Maybe now you'll get fifty percent, thirty percent. 
20%, right? Just imagine the political backlash because of that. So there are going to be these kind of consequences down the road uh, uh, and whether or not it's going to translate into 17 cities and, uh, and protests on the street, we don't know, but there are going to be a lot of grievances down the road. Kerry, over to you. So I think Yusheng is setting up this, this, in the long term, quite formidable challenge for the Chinese Communist Party of, of, of slowing economic growth. How, how existential do you see that challenge to be? And, and is the real narrative here perhaps then one where the current protests might not actually be particularly serious, but possibly the beginning of a, a whole new epoch of, of, of increased domestic unrest in China, you know, partly driven simply by the, 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 the way in which the economy is slowing down and therefore that this kind of social contract is beginning to creak? Well, I suspect, I mean, the, the economy is going to be a big, big problem. The Communist Party of China is like a kind of risk management, management entity. I mean, you know, it manages risk. And I think the issue really for the, the government in China at the moment is every sort of projection I see of, you know, kind of coming out of a pandemic when you relax restrictions, for China, they all look very worrying. And, you know, even the most benign of them do see a spike of some sort. And the healthcare system, I mean, the data is, you know, kind of quite widely available, but for intensive care and for, you know, people who have to be hospitalized, it's clear that it doesn't have a huge amount of capacity and it's very variable. In cities, it might be quite good. In rural areas, it might be bad or non-existent. So I think the problem is that if the um, spike is a dramatic one and you have huge increases and in infections and also new variants and also, you know, kind of increase because elderly have not been vaccinated or, um, you know, they're more vulnerable, big increases in mortality rates, because at the moment the Chinese government say that they've only, I think, had six or seven thousand deaths. I mean, that's incredible when you think of how many it's been in America or Britain, Europe. If that dramatically increases, that kind of thing is definitely going to have political consequences because it's a not just a rural or a, an urban thing. It's a kind of pan, you know, a kind of pan China thing. I mean, it's everywhere. The second is it completely cuts against the Chinese government's commitment under Xi Jinping to be efficient, to be people first, to deliver the fundamental things in an equitable way. This shows, in fact, an enormous breakdown of government efficiency and a policy, a very clear policy mistake, which resides at the door of one person, Xi Jinping, who really put his name to the zero COVID approach. And I think the final thing is that this this is the kind of thing where China, until recently, was able to really say, we manage this better than the outside world. We didn't have the mess that you had in Europe. We didn't have the mess you had in America. We've done okay. And a huge spike and a healthcare crisis will definitely absolutely undermine that. So I do worry about that outcome. I mean, while, of course, people like to, you know, kind of see an autocratic system really being kind of undermined and questioned, we have to remember that the impact of a Chinese governance failure is going to be global. It's not going to be, you know, just national. It will be global. And I think um, that is 
a really worrying scenario when you think of the importance of China in the global economy, supply links, all of the things that in fact it's integrated into. Um, a healthcare um, crisis in China is in effect a global crisis. And I find it scarily possible at the moment to see that happening. Let, let's just um, jump for a second, um, both of you, onto foreign policy. So, so yesterday we had two, um, two, two other experts actually talking about their new book on Zelensky. And, and, and of course, um, the, the kind of, to, to many, I think, in the West, miraculous kind of resistance of Ukraine against the, against the Russian aggression there. Yesheng, tell us a bit about how these dynamics may or may not be playing out in China now. How, how important is Z's support for Russia in domestic Chinese politics? Would would any of the domestic discord have been driven at all by by his position there? Does he regret supporting Putin now, or is this is this largely irrelevant when we when we talk about healthcare and the economy? Uh, well, the honest answer is we don't really know much about him. Right, in terms of how he thinks about Russia and, and Putin, all we know is what we read in the media, which is that he, and, and let me be clear, that it's not just Xi Jinping, previous Chinese leaders always had a soft spot for Russia for reasons I cannot defend on objective reasons, uh, on, on objective grounds. If you think about the country that has heard China the most, it is Russia. They took away about 10% of the Chinese territories uh, in, the, in the 19th century, and their economic system prevented Chinese economy from growing basically from 1950s to the 1970s, right? And their army pillaged the Chinese uh, Northeast, raping Chinese women and, and ransacking Chinese factories. For those reasons, I don't quite understand why you want to have a, such a good relationship with Russia while antagonizing the West, which has helped Chinese economy grow, which has taken Chinese students and scholars and, and, and all of that. So that was a, a, a psychological choice. I, I don't even want to dignify the relationship using political terms, it's, it's really psychological, ideological, it's not tangible politics, it's not tangible uh, economics. I don't think nobody in China today will shed tear for Russia, if not for Xi Jinping, and, and maybe a close circle of his comrades. I don't think you lose politically that much. Uh, what you do lose from the elites it's a bad relationship with the United States, a bad relationship with with uh, with Europe. Uh, many of the political and economic elites in China uh, are pocketing their assets. They are sending their children to the to the West. That's the relationship that you lose from if you don't uh, if you let it uh, slide. And she has let it slide for the last ten years. There's some indication, maybe very vague indication that he wants to repair the relationship with the West. In Bali, in Indonesia, uh, he had a, a cordial meeting with uh, President Biden. And according to Wall Street Journal, uh, there was a secret uh, delegation from China to reconnect with what they call old friends in America. Uh, there's a uh, greater emphasis on people-to-people 
a diplomacy. I think the reason is that the economy is in such a bad shape. They really need to attract foreign investments. They need the market. Now they recognize the value of the U.S. market. Just to give you a sense of how irrational the support for Russia is, the total size of the Russian economy is about the same as one province in China, Guangdong province, right? It's just one provincial GDP. That's about it. Even if the whole Russian GDP is trade with China, that's just one province, right? Whereas with the West, with the United States, you know, we're talking about massive volume of trade, massive volume of foreign direct investment, technological linkages, you know, at, at MIT, we talk about technology all the time, technological linkages, right? So the decoupling from the United States, from the West, is going to fundamentally undercut the Chinese economy and undercut his own objective of uh, launching scientific and technological uh, revolution in, in China, building Chinese manufacturing into the advanced manufacturing rather than just labor-intensive manufacturing. So all these things cut against his foreign policy objectives. I'm happy to see some moderation, some revision of that policy. The thing I was worried about during the protest is that if the Chinese regime crack down on protesters in a very sort of visual manner, the way that they did in 1989, then all bets are off, right? So the human rights and, and, and abuses. And I was even worried about Foxconn factory. When the workers uh, worked out from the Foxconn factory in protest against low pay and all of that, I was worried about a bloody crackdown. And then I wrote on my Twitter that if they had a bloody crackdown, Apple is going to withdraw from China. They are not going to source a single iPhone from China. But now Apple has announced that they are going to move at least part of their iPhone production out of China, even without a bloody crackdown, right? And so the economic consequences are very severe. And I think the repair work is much needed, but I don't think fundamentally it is enough. There's a lack of trust between the West and China. That lack of trust cannot be repaired by a handshake, uh, by some nice exchanges, by an unofficial delegation to reconnect with old friends in America. Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. Kerry, let's come to you for the last question before turning to the audience. And Yusheng used a, a word there that I'd, I'd like your thoughts on decoupling. Now, if you, if you go to any security summit... 
any kind of event at the moment on digital resilience or on geopolitics, that, that word is coming up more and more and more over the last couple of years, isn't it? The idea that there is this kind of grand decoupling at the moment of, of basically Western and Chinese uh, kind of economic engagement um, on almost an unimaginable, well, on a literally an unimaginable scale where everything seems to be coming apart. Is, is that true in your eyes? One. Two, um, is, it in, is it a process which is irreversible at this point? Like, are, we, are we moving towards a world where there is just going to be these two different technospheres and two different economic systems that, that really will have much, much less to do with each other than they currently do? I mean, I think decoupling is um, wishful thinking. I, I mean, I'm sure in an ideal world, when you have two partners, or sorry, two players like America and China, where their values, their sort of view of themselves, their egotism uh, in different ways uh, is so fundamentally incompatible, you'd kind of just create a, a big, big wall and you'd sort of leave one to be on their side and one other to be on their side and just sort of tell them, look, you know, leave each other alone. You obviously don't get on, just leave each other alone. But I mean, that's not possible. A divorce like that is not possible. I mean, it's not possible because climate change, pandemics, global issues, they either get solved by everyone together or they don't get solved at all. So ironically, although the pandemic has seen a deepening of this distrust that Yashin just referred to, it's also seen this weird kind of underlying of the fact that we can't really ignore each other, that China and if you want to call it the West with America at the centre are sort of, you know, they're stuck with each other. And I'm sure, you know, uh, it's, the, the feeling is mutual. China would love just not to deal with um, the West and the West would love not to deal with China. I mean, at least politicians, but that's not going to happen. If you look at trade statistics, I mean, like Britain as an example, I mean, despite very poor political relations because of Hong Kong and other issues over the last three, four years, our trade with China has gone up, up and up and up. Australia, I mean, a great case. Australia's never had worse relations with China politically, at least under the Morrison government. Uh, and yet, if you look at iron ore exports to China from Australia, they went through the roof uh, last year. I think it was a record year. I believe America's uh, trading figures with China are also huge. So decoupling, I think, is going to be a partial process. It will happen in specific areas. It'll just have to be very tactical where, you know, there are things that we're just not going to be able to have meaningful conversations about. But I think in many other areas like it or loathe it, uh, we're together um, and we just have to find a way of divvying up this situation so that we can work where we can with each other and at other places just we don't work. We can't do that. Thank you, Kerry. All right, both of you, time for some audience questions now. They're going to be much sterner, much tougher uh, asks of your expertise than anything that I've thrown at you so far. So the first one, you're saying over, over to you. And this one perhaps reflects um, what we've seen in the Iranian protests recently, which, which is the emphasis there on, 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 on the role of the West and actually specifically the US and the UK in actually fermenting and supporting the protests. So the question asks here, have we seen Beijing blaming foreign influence for the protests happening in China? There's some, but I have to say this time around, it is not as much as before. And for example, in the Hong Kong protests, there was a very strong language about foreign meddling, foreign interferences uh, all over the place from 
government, from media. This time around, there are some suggestions of foreign interferences, but I have not seen a large-scale echoing of that line uh, in the official media. There were hints, there were suggestions, yes. And then the, the there is a, um, you know, according to the media, there is a conversation between Xi Jinping and the head of the EU who was visiting China a, a few days ago. And she told him that the students were behind the protest and they were complaining about the lockdown. I mean, that's just <laughs> honest truth, right? So rather than saying that foreigners are behind this, you know, he, he said students were behind this. That's actually not true. There were also other people who got involved. But at least he did, at, at that level, he didn't say it was CIA or it was, uh, it was a foreign uh, organizations. So I think the, the truth this time is too obvious. When you lock down 400 million people for a sustainable period of time, there's going to be some degree of unhappiness. And that unhappiness is going to translate into some sort of unhappiness uh, on the streets, no matter what the foreign uh, involvement is. And, and that's just, the truth is so obvious that uh, unlike Hong Kong, Hong Kong, you can argue that they were protesting against some sort of abstract idea or four abstract ideals of democracy and freedom, which are, usually the Western values, right, viewed as Western values. So therefore, there's some, um, I mean, it's not my my view, but there's some plausibility that Westerners are behind these movements because these are Western values. This is really about unhappiness being locked up in your apartment, being locked up in a little bed in a few hospitals for three months, right? So so there's not that much of that now, which, which I think is a it's it's in a very modest way it's, it's a sign of progress okay thank you right the next question is so important i'm going to ask it to both of you but Kerry, we'll go over to you first and it's it's on something i can't believe we actually haven't spoken really about yet certainly given my job description yasheng you and mit and that's technology so um the question asks um how will chinese companies like huawei and tiktok uh, be dealt with in the West. To which I'll add, how will Western companies be dealt with in China? I mean, Kerry, to put the partial decoupling that you discussed, like, is this is technology one area where that is actually happening at pace? I think it's probably only the hardware companies in the West that are still active in China now, isn't it? The kind of apples, um, but. Yeah. I, you don't you don't see kind of um, Wikipedia or or Twitter currently thinking that it can operate there anymore. Uh, no. Um, look, I mean, uh, for instance, uh, if you look if you look at technology in terms of I don't know, like automotive technology. I mean, it's pretty you know it's still clear that German, uh, you know, the Volkswagen or, or kind of companies like that are still you know doing a lot in China, and that's why the German Chancellor went to China uh, last month and and had a relatively okay uh, meeting with Xi and others, but also took a trade delegation with him. I mean, Huawei is a great example because I suppose that's representative of where we're going, really, which is Huawei, it seems to me, has decent markets in domestic China, Middle East, um, you know, Latin America and Africa, and it's not really... 
um, doing a great deal or not what's what it wants to do in Europe and America or North America. TikTok is a different model. I mean, you know, the fact that it's got a kind of the local version and then, um, you know, it sort of is active and popular, uh, you know, in America and elsewhere. But it, it, it's kind of probably not seen. I, I, I mean, it's not seen as a sort of um, principally a Chinese company in a weird way. I think a lot of people that use it have no idea what its ownership structure might be. And I believe that, in fact, in America and Europe, it's actually not a Chinese-owned entity anymore. I mean, so there's different ways of sort of doing this. Look, where this gets interesting is if you look at the amazing amounts of money that the Chinese government says it's going to be spending on research and development. You know, Xi Jinping's speech on the 16th of October at the Congress sort of spoke about China being an innovation great power. If that is even partially fulfilled, um, it's still going to mean that China may have technologies uh, for life sciences, environmental protection, these kind of things that um, the West and others are going to need. So, I mean, I think this is going to be an area where it is not going to be great asymmetry between the West being a technology kind of, you know, a, a power and China being a deficit. I think it's very complicated and I think it will be subject to constant negotiation and kind of shifting boundaries. Sheng, over to you. What, what do you think? Is, is Kerry's vision of this kind of complicated partial decoupling, partial alliance what you see too? Yeah, so I, I think te technological development happens everywhere in the same way. It happens on the basis of deep, meaningful collaborations. Right? The collaborations can be between two institutions within the same country or on a global scale. Right, And collaborations can be production collaboration with the market, right? all kinds of collaborations. If you look at Huawei, Huawei before uh, 2018, so that was when the trade war began uh, to happen. Uh, Huawei had uh, over 130 suppliers from the United States. Huawei succeeded on the basis of collaborations with the U.S. suppliers and with uh, U.S. trained and, and and in fact, one, once I visited Huawei, the the head of uh, Huawei's um, corporate strategy department uh, is a British, uh, I believe, uh, British citizen. So it's a very inter it was very international uh, company, and the fact that now you have geopolitical tensions between the West and China, and the fact that. Uh, Huawei is on the sanction list. It's going to hurt Huawei. There's no question about it. If you look at Huawei today, it is not the same as Huawei before 2018. Now it's a very domestically focused company. Uh, the operating system is um, Google uh, used to be its operating system. So I cannot be sure about this, uh, but Google was on the uh, sanction list of not being able to supply to Huawei, so they may rely on their own domestic uh, operating system. Once you do that, you cut off many, many apps that are available on the Google uh, platform. In terms of how, so I live in the United States, I'll just use the United States rather than that. It may not apply to England and it may not apply to Europe. One of the complaints that I have about U.S. policy toward Chinese companies is that 
we have a very defensive policy, right? TikTok, uh, Trump administration tried to go after the TikTok because of the consumer data and, and all of that. You know, you need to take care of that. You need to take care of privacy and and, and those uh, those issues for sure. But I think the West and the United States missed a fundamental opportunity to use companies such as TikTok to open the Chinese market to similar social media companies in China, uh, in the United States, right? So if I were run the trade representative office in the United States, I would say the following to the Chinese, right? TikTok can operate in the United States, Baidu can operate in the United States, but Facebook cannot, Twitter cannot, Google cannot, right? So I would argue that maybe we should have symmetry here. Maybe in one year's time, you open up the Chinese market to Google, to Facebook, or to Twitter, to any social media, I don't care, right? On the condition that the uh, uh, that, that, that we can grant uh, access of the U.S. market to uh, TikTok, right? You can apply this methodology to other arenas. New York Times is not allowed in China, but China Daily is allowed in the United States. People's Daily is allowed in the United States. I mean, all you need to ask is symmetry. It's not more, it's not less, right? So you you would go to the Chinese and say, I'm going to shut down China Daily in the United States in six months, eight months, whatever, on the condition you open up Chinese media market to the New York Times, right? Uh, but the U.S. is not doing that. U.S. is, um, during the Trump administration, they, they they try to shut down the Chinese access to uh, to America in terms of journalists, in terms of uh, Chinese media. They try to shut down the Confucius uh, Institute. Uh, I would argue that's not the right way to do, to do it. Even if you want to shut down, you want to do it after you have failed to obtain similar treatment from the Chinese government to Western institutions freely operating in China, then you're shut down if you don't get that, right? Rather than shutting it down proactively. So that would be my approach uh, on, on, on this particular issue. Is, is, is Yashen, sticking with you just, just on this, um, is, is that a realistic prospect? Would, would would any Chinese regime realistically allow Facebook now to operate in China at scale if it were not to, say, conform to the same censorship and information control provisos that, that, that the Chinese regime expects every Chinese social media platform to conform to? So just, just to make sure that we're uh, on the same factual page, the, the issue for Facebook is not censorship. It's not allowed to operate in China, right? So, you know, you can, it's a little bit debatable once it is allowed whether or not Facebook should observe this, the censorship rules and, and things, or whether or not Facebook wants to go to China given the censorship rules. That's a separate issue. The issue is Facebook, at least for years, tried to go to China and they were not allowed to enter into China. Google was basically kicked out by China 
and they exited from the Chinese market. So in terms of whether they, they were or not, kicked out for refusing to censor, weren't they, Google? Like it was it was refusing to no, conform to censorship no, requirements. Yeah, so they, that's right. So Google the official statement from Google was that they uh, they couldn't abide by the censorship rules instituted by the Chinese government, and then they left. If I were the U.S. government then, I would U.S. As far as I know, U.S. government didn't do anything, right? So I would help Google there, and 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 then. Argue for and try to negotiate a an agreement that the two sides observe the same censorship rules. Right, basically in the United States there's not much censorship, and in China there's not much. Uh, there's a lot of censorship. At least the two rules, right, should converge somewhere in between. You know, whether or not it should be exactly the same, I don't really go for that. But at least. Directionally, the 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 the, the rules should uh, converge uh, in the same uh, direction. In terms of whether Chinese government agrees or not, I don't think they will agree, right? But then you put the burden on their court; it is their decision not to agree, and then that will give you the rationale to shut down the Chinese operations. Now it is viewed by many many people in China, by many many people, that it is a unilateral. Action by the United States government to shut down the Chinese operations, right? So, at least on the moral level, you have some sort of high ground once you put the burden of the refusal to the other side. Okay, indeed. Okay, well, Kerry, future-facing questions. So, what is his plan for the third term? Uh, does he have an idea of uh, what he wants China to be like? So, so uh, yeah, what, what's his what's his agenda? Domestic, foreign, just a, just a, a nice, easy, short question for you to answer in a couple of minutes. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, the uh, vision given, for instance, at the sixty, uh, the twentieth um, Party Congress in October was of national uh, rejuvenation. So that's been a theme for all of his time in power um, for the Communist Party to be uh, the strategic body that delivers this and therefore is sustainable uh, one party rule sustainable and uncontested and that Chinese people continue uh, to kind of have a feeling of uh, you know kind of being in a country which is succeeding being restored to the centre of the earth, having great status, quite a nationalistic vision, quite a populist vision. And, of course, if the economy is not looking great, those nationalistic populist sentiments may well be helpful in giving the government different sorts of legitimacy rather than just performative ones. And I think that's been true for a while because the growth has been going down over the last 15 years. Um... What does that mean for the world? Well, I, I guess I'm interested in, uh, you know, whether China will be the number one economy or not, uh, depending on what measure you use. I, I mean, who knows? I mean, it may be the number one economy in the next decade on just gross terms, uh, maybe sooner, maybe never. What I'm really interested in is how the very idea of perhaps 
China being the number one economy, whether likely or not, has created in some ways a lot of panic in Europe and America, probably in America more than Europe. But it seems to me there's a lot of panic. And I find that unsettling because we're not there yet and we might not even get there. But it seems to me that while I can see strong arguments for China, um, you know, being accused of doing certain things and being very self-interested and being a very difficult partner. Um, What I find extraordinary is how nervous and insecure uh, the West, in particular America and Europe, are about themselves. Um, Xi Jinping's China, particularly its chief ideologue, Wang Huning, who's still the kind of in the Politburo, have really created this sort of identity politics with Chinese characteristics. And that's really about you must be proud to be Chinese because you have 5,000 years of culture and all the rest of it. All of this may well be a fantasy, a construction, but emotionally, I think it means something. And the Xi leadership have manipulated or used that quite well in their politics, at least till now. And I think that the West has been quite kind of unsettled by this. And we actually now have an opportunity because things are slowing down. China's progress is definitely slowing down. We need, and I mean Europe and America in particular, but others who consider themselves part of the sort of, you know, enlightenment kind of world, um, enlightenment values world, um, to sort of work out what we do in a world where there is such a significant player that does not clearly subscribe to the kind of values that, you know, kind of prevail in in the West. And that has to just be dealt with. It can't be defeated. It has to be dealt with. I think that's very urgent. So that is the business that geopolitics, to me, must be about in the next year, two years, maybe longer, um, because that is fundamental to the world order as we go forward. And uh, Yasheng, over to you. The next one is from Cindy. Uh, Yasheng, this one's to you. Do you think the economic trouble um, experienced in China at the moment um, is good or bad news for Taiwan? <laughs> mm. uh, okay, that's a tough one to end the program. Uh, I, I, the honest answer is is the honest answer is I don't know. The reason is that. In a centralized uh, political system, we have to get into the head of one person to understand the rationale and the calculations. I mean, if I were that one person, I wouldn't attack Taiwan no matter what my economy uh, is, right? So if it is bad, it is uh, doubly injurious to my economy. If I attack Taiwan, Taiwan, if I attack Taiwan, there's going to be embargo on China, there's going to be trade sanctions, there's going to be financial sanctions on on China. That cannot possibly be good for China. If the economy is good, then what's the What's the motivation to attack Taiwan? You know, so there's this narrative that uh, you want to attack Taiwan to uh, seize the control of a TCMC, right? Which is the semiconductor producer in 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 Taiwan. Once you do that, you seize the control of the company. You basically seize the control of a building rather than a company, 
right? It ceases to be TSMC the moment that you seize the control of, of that company. So it doesn't really produce any economic benefits for, uh, for China. But on rational grounds, I cannot think of one single reason that you should attack Taiwan. I cannot. So it's very hard for me to answer that question. So, so I, I mean, I think it's probably right to say that a stronger economy, ironically, means that there might be a path for Xi Jinping and the leaders around him because they need to demonstrate that they're winners, uh, that the Taiwanese might, in their minds, want to join. Because I think um, the they must know that enforcing a solution to this problem on 23 million people on Taiwan who, who don't see the identity as being, uh, you know, kind of People's Republic of China at all. They see their identity as being Taiwanese, not even Chinese, but Taiwanese, Taiwanese, Chinese, maybe, but mostly Taiwanese. So I think maybe that is a route long term to having some sort of resolution where, you know, as a Taiwanese, you want to have a very soft kind of link, uh, you know, to, to the People's Republic. Uh, if the People's Republic also changes at the moment, I, I can't see anything except the status quo being status quo being you know, manageable. Um, however, as uh, Yasheng sort of correctly said, uh, you know there may be knee-jerk issues. It depends on one man, Xi Jinping. I have to say, in the last two or three months, having looked at you know kind of him for many years, it's kind of ominous uh, how he's making decisions, how much power he's accrued. And how in lockdown stuff, you know, on the Taiwan issue, on the management of the sort of international relations, it's sort of just looking a little bit uh, like Putin. I mean, nowhere near as bad as that at the moment, but it looks ominous. And this kind of thing is really uh, the one where it is likeliest that he may make a call which could have global consequences and be hugely detrimental. Let's just hope that won't happen. But it's very, very worrying. All right. Well, both of you, thank you. I mean, you, you, and everyone watching, you, you, you'll, you'll see the pure richness of this topic by the fact that we didn't even talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. But I'd like to thank Yasheng and Kerry, really, both of you, so much for this amazing conversation. It's been so unbelievably interesting. Everyone, they've written tons of stuff on all of this, umpteen books. So, so, so do do check them all out and continue to read. But, but both of you, thank you very, very much. I've been Carl Miller. Thanks very much for joining us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.